Hey guys, welcome back to the Promethean Perspective. I'm your host, Emily. Thank you so much for joining me. So if you guys listened to the last episode, I left you with a bit of a cliffhanger. I was like, stay tuned. We have a really exciting announcement coming. And I forgot to include that in yesterday's episode. So I'm sitting down again today to record this episode and to tell you guys what the exciting announcement is. We're going to release this project a bit early because I really enjoy you guys and I wanted to get this out there for you. So today I'm going to announce what the big announcement is. And to be honest, I have loved Promethean Perspective, but as I mentioned in my last episode, I took some time to discern really the message I'm sharing here and what I feel convicted to share and what I feel feel called to um, delve into and the topics we discuss here and such. And through much prayer and discernment, I have decided to officially, drumroll, start a Theology Thursday. So every Thursday, in addition to the weekly podcast, I'm going to be dropping an episode specifically on some theological matter. And I thought this would be really awesome to just do in general, not just during Lent, but I think this is going to be really fun. And so if you're a bit more on the theological side of things and you really enjoy listening to other people's perspectives on scriptural exegesis and philosophical theological discussions surrounding scripture and the catechism and sociology and Christology, this is definitely the place for you to be. So yeah, I'm doing this because I noticed like half the audience is split in half of people who really enjoy like small talk about like everyday topics such as authentic friendships and um, like finances and lifestyle hacks and, and things of that nature. But then there's also a large group of people in our Promethean Perspective po- uh, podcast audience that love a theological aspect to it. So we're just going to appease both crowds. And uh, I'm super excited because I love delving into theology and I love doing some research and sharing my perspectives with people on that. So without further ado, welcome to the very first Theological Thursday episode. Let's go. Okay, so for today's episode, we have a few different theological objectives. And so we're going to be diving into the difference between the kerygma and the didache. We're going to define some terms here so that as we continue this journey, we know what we're talking about and we have a clear perspective of everything. So we're going to define terms like Christology, Soteriology. We're going to identify um, specifically St. Mark. In today's episode, we're going to identify the traditional author of the gospel that's attributed to the name of Mark. We're going to describe the term gospel in regards to how Mark uses it. We're going to interpret the parable of the sower as the author. Um, Believed Mark intended it to be understood in regards to scripture. So we're also going to dive into why I think Mark is often thought to be rougher edged in his portrayal of Jesus. That's got some interesting nuances that I think are going to be fun to dive into. And then we're also going to um, close with an explanation of why the title Son of Man in the Gospel of Mark is more suggestive of divinity than the title Son of God. So I think we need to dive into this episode. It's gonna be it's gonna be a fun ride. So just a few words to keep in mind would be like Kerygma, Didache, Christology, Soteriology, Theophany, Gospel, um, Apocalyptic Literature, you could even say, Son of God, Son of Man, and also we're gonna be focusing on the parable of the sower just a touch more um, than uh, all the rest. So let's dive into this. Let's start with Let's start with defining those two words that I use, Christology and Soteriology. The sources of Christology and doctrine, um, who Jesus is and what he does, 
we know is learned from sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That is what the Catholic Church teaches. And according to um, some doctrines of Vatican II, sacred tradition and sacred scripture of both the Old and New Testaments are a mirror in which the church, um, the pilgrim church on earth, looks at God from whom she has received everything. And then eventually she is brought finally to see him as he is face to face. And we see um, a perfect portrayal of this in First John chapter 3, verse 2. Also, if you're going to be listening to this episode, might as well go ahead and get your Bible out because we're going to be quoting some scripture here. And it'd be really awesome if you guys could like follow along just so that you guys get experience of like looking up those verses and feeling and, and, and searching for the word of God as we're exploring it. So this statement is because, um, as Vatican II stresses, there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture for both of the two entities um, flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merges into a unity and then tends towards a cohesive end. So for sacred scripture, the word of God, in as much as it is con- con- consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit, uh, while sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ um, and the Holy Spirit to the apostles, hands it on to their successors in its full purity, so that led by the light of the spirit of truth, um, they in turn are proclaiming it um, to preserve this word that that God, uh, the word of God faithfully, and to explain it and to um, proclaim it in every in every nation and every place to all the people. So briefly describing tradition. Tradition is what was handed on by the apostles, including everything which contributes towards the holiness of life and also increases in faith of the people of God. And so the church, in her teaching, as Dei Verbum, paragraph 8 points out, um, teaches life worship and it perpetrates and hands on to all generations all that she herself is and essentially all that she believes. So it is within living, uh, I guess, I guess with it is within the living church that we learn about Jesus and where we come to meet him. Um, as a prelude to our discussion of the Gospels, the writing of St. Paul and tradition, um, I think it's important to distinguish between Christology and Soteriology on the one hand and between Kerygma and Didache on the other. So let's dive into that. Um, briefly put, very briefly put, uh, Christology is the study of Christ. It's concerned with who Christ is and indeed anything about his career, career therein, human ministry, death, resurrection, and also like even his existence before he became man, which is a topic that's really not talked about as much as it should be. Christology really is a pretty broad field, but sociology in contrast is a branch of Christology that is concerned with the overall um, study or experience, uh, yeah, study of salvation or observation of salvation. It begins with original sin and the need for a savior, um, which is inclusive of the grace that man receives, the forgiveness of sins and guilt. And then that ties into the twofold mystery of Christ as both mediator, but also as redeemer. So in our focus of sociology, we're going to be concerned, I think, more specifically with Christ's saving actions than with his being, his person. Um, and we'll study what he did rather than who he was and how his work actually saves people and indeed what it means to even be saved at all. So sociology deals with um, questions such as from what humans are being saved and for for what they are being saved from, essentially. So to answer all of these questions about Christology in general, or sociology specifically, we turn to the New Testament. And in, a, in with scripture, we also turn towards the tradition of the church. So in the New Testament, 
sometimes it is useful to to group the data in the New Testament to two parts, and those two parts are known as the Kerygma and the Didache. So uh, before the Gospels were written, they were first proclaimed. Now, this would be your example of tradition. The context, the content, this preaching or proclamation is, is the Kerygma. So preaching is an essential element, and its authority rests on that of Jesus, which is tradition. So the object of preaching is the salvation of that, that God will accomplish in Jesus Christ. So the kerygma preserved in the New Testament, we see we see that the kerygma is preserved in the New Testament in several ways, actually, because like the synoptic tradition of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke focuses primarily on the coming of God's kingdom and of the Messiah, and it urges all to repent and be converted. Um, and so in, in large, John's gospel testifies to the person and the sending of the Messiah, who is God, um, come down from heaven. So St. Paul's preaching deals primarily with the mystery hidden in all ages, which is Christ himself, who is the source of salvation for men. So the didache, in contrast to the kerygma, refers to the instructional aspect of the biblical revelation. So while distinct from the a- essence of kerygma, it's not separated. It's not detached. The message of the didache is directed principally to the intellect and it tells and informs man about the truth of the message Christianity bears. So urging, it, it, kerygma urges man to respond to the truth, to Christ, um, whom we know says he is the truth. So um, I think it's really important to just point out that the tradition of the church sees both kinds of revelation, kerygma and didache, in the career, if you will, of, of Christ. So in the gospels, Jesus is seen and recognized as a teacher, but also a prophet. So in this sense, Jesus is often seen teaching, instructing, imparting, and informing, passing on knowledge of God, and instructing in the ways of true piety. So this is Jesus giving didache. But Jesus also preaches in a way that calls his hearers to action, chief among which is repenting, uh, also believing in his message of the coming kingdom. So so this is Jesus has um, charismatic prophet, okay? So we could say, to put it simply, that kerygma is the basic proclamation of the coming kingdom, and didache is the practical teaching that the gospel delves into of how the followers of the kingdom should live in consequence of their belief and in reception of kerygma. So in the study of Christology that we're going to be diving into, we will be looking both at kerygma and didache um, very closely. So I guess bearing in mind the distinctions between kerygma and didache, um, we can now turn to the primary sources for information about the life of Jesus, the New Testaments, um, to, to clarify, and, and, and tradition, which of course started in the Old Testament. So the Gospels that we find in the canon were chosen as the best representation of Jesus by, by the authorities um, in tradition. So I want to talk about the Gospel of Mark because as we begin our study of the Synoptic Gospel in particular, um, we are going to study the other Synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Luke as well. Um, because, um, they're called synoptic, which actually synoptic means with one eye, because, um, together they offer, um, a composite view of the life of Christ. So placed side by side, they present a form of a parallel comparison of different stories told by the three evangelists. So they follow the same general plan, showing the same kind of nuances of Christ's public life, ending with his death and resurrection. And the three, these three um, gospel texts actually are similar in two primary, 
primary ways that um I guess the first would be that the events related, the content is is similar, but then also to the literary expressions used to tell the story. So the content and the form would be the two main similarities I would say between the three gospel, the three synoptic gospels. So the synoptic gospels were written to record historical events. The the oral teaching of Christ has passed through um, the teaching of the apostles, um, whom we know were eyewitnesses of the event. So. The Gospels weren't weren't just written to merely record raw facts and data. Like, they provide one of the two foci of interpretation. So the other one is, of course, the tradition. And the facts presented um, had already been thrust into an atmosphere of, of meaning, of depth, surrounded by faith. And so we see this once again to be tradition. So the people who presented them, um, the apostles, were committed to the message, were witnesses to the person. And I say the word person meaning... Um, capital P, um, behind the message, Jesus Christ. And so uh, the, these these apostles were members of the church community. And in fact, the word witness, as we know, translated from the Greek um, uh, to witness, or, or even better, there's a, the other definition is to bear testimony. So each gospel is a testimony to uh, the words and deeds of Jesus within the broader context of theological interpretation, um, specifically of... Um, uh, specifically of, of an interpretation of tradition. So often we might think of, of each synoptic gospel has a, as a portrait of Jesus that is at once faithful to the original subject, while also conveys something of the mind of a particular artist or a painter, you could say. But the gospels are different for essentially the same reason that uh, a various representation of John Adams would be different. Like on any given portrait or any given photo, they're not all going to be the same. Uh, and while each may be true to the historical man, they're all going to be different in some way. So let's turn to um, to Mark to see what this inspired, yet I think I think often unappreciated author um, can sh- contribute to our study of the person, but also the nature of Christ. So I think just delving into a bit of an introduction for Mark. Um, he, is the, he is an ev- evangelist, so uh, as we know, all teachings of the Catholic Church are firmly rooted in sacred scripture. So whatever doctrines the church proposes follows a deliberate formula. So the principles are located in sacred scripture, um, and they're handed down by sacred tradition. And so faithfully interpreted in every age by the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, our study of Christ then um, can begin with a study of how he is, his life, and his works are presented in sacred scripture. So these are found primarily in the Gospels, and, and also St. Paul's writing, I think you could say. Um, so this will be the topic of our first three episodes. Episodes one is going to be considering how the Gospel of Mark portrays the person and also the life of Christ. And our goal is not to only cover the basic elements of Christology, in that particular gospel, but also to increase our appreciation of the richness of that gospel in the process. So the scope of this episode is going to cover the coming of Christ and and his redemptive state as man. So most of our knowledge of Christ comes from sacred scriptures, and we're going to use this for our basis um, for the three points of, of the episode of the synoptic tradition, St. Paul, and, and then we'll follow it with Saint, some St. John. So the gospel of St. Mark gives us accounts of the life of Christ, um, and the epistles written by Paul, 
um, show the early Christian communities and their purpose to continue the instructions Christ had given them. And so, in turn, they show us today how the early church carried out what Jesus not only taught, but also what he did. So, I guess really focusing on on St. Mark. um, St. Mark wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. Uh, However, according to tradition, he was, I believe, a disciple of St. Peter. So, the one mentioned um, in 1 Peter chapter 5, 13. Um, His gospel, in fact, was probably written in Rome and derived... I would say, in comparing the two writings, um, derived largely from the preaching of Peter himself. So the evangelist um, Mark tells us a great deal of the theological purpose of their respective gospels by how the story begins. So Mark is is no exception. Like rather than an infancy narrative, as we see in Matthew and Luke, like he begins with the preaching of John the Baptist. What he says in the very first verse is incredibly important. Like he says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So anybody who's a beginner in scriptural studies or, or of any sort will find it very easy to read past this seemingly artless beginning. But if you delve into it a, deep, uh, a bit deeper and reflect upon it, your attention can be drawn to the central word of the phrase gospel. What does Mark mean by this word in particular? Now, remember Mark is a first century Jew writing for other first century Jews who believe Jesus is... Israel's long awaited Messiah. So Mark means specifically the good news of Jesus Christ. Not simply good news in a generic sense, but with a very specific um, intention to echo the key content of Old Testament text. So the term good news actually refers to a very well known set of Old Testament scripture passages, which um, I think we've already briefly mentioned. So Isaiah 40, Isaiah 52, and also Isaiah 61 um, point to that. And in those particular te- texts, God addresses his people in exile, a people with whom he is already, um, he's, he's already in a covenant relationship with. And these people are, are discouraged. They're, um, I guess you could say, depressed, having seen that their glorious Jerusalem temple is now destroyed. And so in turn, the Davidic dynasty has ended and the monarchs are led away in chain and and they themselves have been driven out of the land into Babylon as we know from the Babylonian exile so this is a supreme moment of cognitive dissonance like how could Israel's God have allowed this to happen had he forgotten his covenant had he forgotten his people had he forgotten his purpose to use them to restore the whole world to his friendship like Indeed, rather than seeing events move toward this eschatological fulfillment, it seems as though history is actually moving in the opposite direction. God's people are facing a, a, a major defeat while God's enemies boast in triumph. So I think the, the purpose of the second half of the book of, of Isaiah is to assure Israel that, that no, like, to the contrary, God has not forgiven his or forgotten his covenant commitments. Like, the setback that has befallen Israel is temporary. Temporary. It's it's provisional. It's it really is meant to set the stage for an even greater, more glorious saving act on the part of God. So, so God knows. God remains um, faithful to His promise. He's gonna rescue His people in the wilderness when the people might make straight path for Him. So, um, I guess a metaphorical path here by which He would bring His children out of exile. So, in reading Isaiah forty. You can see the comforting fact of God's fidelity, attested by the words of the prophet Isaiah. Um, if you read, um, I guess, Isaiah 49, you get the, the 
why Mark quotes Isaiah and where he gets his notion of the turn gospel. So he says, Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, of herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. And and the word used for um, the translation of good tidings is a cognate of the term that Mark actually uses for gospel, um, angelion in Greek. And so the, the term is thus actually a technical one that, that refers specifically to promises recorded in Isaiah, the prophet concerning God's fidelity to Israel. So Mark doesn't simply repeat the theology of Isaiah the prophet. His project, in turn, is actually to draw the promises of Isaiah and the whole Old Testament story around the person of Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ for Mark. So God fulfilling his promise in the Christ event, like the beginning of the gospel of Christ, of Jesus Christ, signals that this fulfillment is in fact beginning with with the structure of Mark's narrative about Christ. This is the difference between the gospel, good news promised by God, and a gospel, the literary work by Mark, that just retells the promised good news with Jesus at the other end. Does that make sense? So I think with this in mind, um, it'd be ideal to dive into the kingdom. Um, Jesus' baptism is, is the first of, of two theophanies in Mark. Um, the second being the transfiguration. So a theophany, for those of you that don't know, is a, a, a visible manifestation of God. So in this case, there, there is no in, indication of, in the logic of the story that any of the characters other than Jesus himself are able to hear the voice from on high. So the readers of Mark's gospel are just able to hear it, um, just as they've already been told that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. So as we see in Mark, Mark uh, chapter 1. So a fact which confirms that Mark wishes to give his readers privileged information. Uh, God, God's declaration of a beloved son with whom he is well pleased is an echo of Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. So I think it's important to note that this psalm was often read in Jesus' day as in reference to a coming Davidic Messiah. But there's also echoes of Isaiah 42 of the servant of God in whom Yahweh delights as well as um, Abraham's son, Isaac, who... Uh, Genesis, what chapter? Genesis, I think it's chapter 20. Yeah, Genesis chapter 2, um, where Abraham's son Isaac is called his beloved son. So we see this phrase, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, packed with with significance, which will, I think, be more fully revealed as we progress in the in the exploration of the gospel. So Jesus and I, in in Israel's Messiah. Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He is the salvation for Israel's um, story. So yet, he is also the appointed prophetic servant who, in the book of Isaiah, and also like Isaac, um, is another beloved son whom a father had to sacrifice. Um, so what I want to do now is look at other ways that Mark uses elements of the Old Testament to paint his portrait of Christ. Uh, Mark's portrayal of Jesus. Uh, makes, I guess, relatively little of many of the elements uh, very fam- that are very familiar to modern Christians, elements which are emphasized early on in Matthew and Luke. Mark is aware of Jesus' Davidic ancestry, but he also draws comparatively little attention to uh, to this specific nuance. His idea of Jesus' um, messianic identity is more of a prophetic messiah. Um, and in this, um, it points ha- to Christ has 
the servant figure preaching the good news as we see in Isaiah 52. So more of the anointed successor to, I guess, uh, John the Baptist. So, so many interpreters see an echo of the story of Elijah, the prophet, and his successor, Elisha, um, who received the double portion at the River Jordan and Second Kings. And then they, you know, they go on to raise the son of the Shumanite woman, and they multiply oil and bread, and, and they demonstrate mastery over nature by parting the Jordan, healing the waters of Jericho. Yeah, what can I do for you? What? I don't have cotton. Sorry, my brother's looking for the dog. <laughs> um, where was I? Uh, I yes. Yeah, so, what was I saying? Um, there, there seems to be a loose connection in presentation in Jesus's raising Jairus's daughter. Um, other instances such as multiplying the fishes and the loaves, walking on water. Uh, what else? Stealing, uh, stealing the storm. Um, these gospel stories are not nearly close enough to the ones about Elisha, even to suggest Mark co-opted some earlier traditions to give Jesus, um, what, what would you call, a pedigree, I guess, similar to Elisha. So this point is that there is theology of prophetic anointing embedded in the very structure of Mark's gospel. The ministry of Christ after his anointing by John the Baptist reminds Mark of Elisha's tradition, who took up the mantle of his predecessor Elijah. And so for this reason he shapes his gospel accordingly. And the prophetic message of Jesus is, of course, the coming of God's kingdom. And it's striking to me that that Christ begins preaching immediately on the heels of John's arrest. Mark seems to believe, based on Jesus' own preaching, that the arrest of John the Baptist is, in fact, a trigger event for the arrival of God's kingdom. And John's death marks the beginning of the period of messianic woes that were... Uh, widely believed to accompany the the inbreaking of God's kingdom, if you will. So sometimes New Testament writers describe these woes as like labor pains, followed by immense joy. I know there's an instance of that in First Thessalonians chapter five, but also uh, John chapter sixteen. And so while other times, um, for instance, in Revelation, a whole book is devoted to the messianic woes and apparent defeat that give way to a great victory. So the cryptic phrase of Christ, the time fulfilled, as we see in Mark chapter 1, is, is probably an apocalyptic catchphrase, which is programmatic for Mark's gospel, I think. So the drama of which is the secret inbreaking of the kingdom of God, <laughs> unbeknownst to the world. So I, I moving to the parable of the sower, the gospels emphasize not just the person of Christ or his deeds or his teachings. In the synoptic gospels, the most common way for Christ to teach is through parables. And Mark records quite a few of these actually so it in turn draws greater attention to the ones that he does tell (laughs) um actually mark i guess the fact is that mark doesn't record a lot of these parables and so in turn it draws a lot of great attention to the ones that he does tell that's what i was trying to say there so one of the better known parables i guess outside the, the famous one in luke's gospel um the first one recorded in Mark is that of the sower and the seed. And, and any anybody listening will probably know it, at least in its broad outlo- outlines. Like, a sower comes to plant a seed, find the various soils in which he plants it. One One's unable to germinate the seed at all because a bird comes and devours it. Um, another's too rocky, so the seed doesn't actually take root. And, and then the sun in turn dries it up. And then there's another one surrounded by the seed is planted by thorns and thistles, which they just choke off the plant. But then the last soil is abundantly fertile so that the seed can grow 
um, as scripture says, 30, 60, and 100 fold. So the interpretation of this parable, even with, even with the help of Christ's interpretation of it, is actually far more tricky and I guess you could say controversial than most beginning um, Bible delver into Bible insightful people <laughs> can imagine. So, so most homilies actually, in my experience on this parable, they stress personal conversion and the need to be open to the word. And under this interpretation, the parable is perhaps better thought of as, I guess, the parable of soils rather than that of, of the sower. So since the emphasis would be on believers cultivating the correct soil, for instance, uh, spiritual disposition, uh, I have I have no doubt in a different context that, that Mark and Christ himself would have agreed with this message. But, but too little noticed is that this interpretation, I think, is actually contradicted by a close reading of how Jesus uses parables, at least as we know in Mark's Gospels. We assume, I think largely under the influence of Matthew and Luke, that parables are a means by which Jesus instructs his believers. But in Mark's accounts of the parable, uh, parabolic ministry, he parables are, for Mark, are not like how Jesus teaches his, his followers. Parables are, for Mark, the way that Jesus confuses his enemies. So to those that are on the inside of Jesus' circle— he speaks not like in parables, but he speaks in plain, in, in plain language. So so this is not clear initially um, in Mark when the parables are introduced, but Christ does make it clear if you read on in Mark uh, chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. Um, he says, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn again and be forgiven. So <laughs> Jesus isn't interested in converting anyone through a parable here he's in turn actually hindering and even preventing their conversion now we're going to discuss this more fully because i know this is a bit controversial uh statement to make but but we should note here that this makes very unlikely the standard homiletic parable of soils interpretation in which the message is receptivity to the word of god what on earth is going on here? Like, sharp-eyed readers would easily catch the Old Testament allusion in, in Mark chapter 4. So, it's an obvious reference to Isaiah chapter 9, or chapter 6, actually. In in that famous passage, which we all know, the prophet Isaiah was sent to, to preach to Israel, but the preaching would only seal the people's spiritual doom. By the by the end of the book, one can easily see that the, the fullness of um, Isaiah's ministry would produce infinite eschatological glory, indeed, like a new heaven and earth. But, but this would only occur occur after the kingdom's apparent failure by Israel's own rejection of it. So, so likewise, Jesus is using this same Isaiah paradigm to explain the kingdom, which has already been charged by God to usher in. So, Jesus' message, like that of John the Baptist before him, isn't necessarily a smashing success. It's, it's meeting with opposition and rejection and misunderstanding. And that's, that's really important to note because the point is that this is all in the plan of the divine sower who will bring the kingdom in through his Messiah despite, and even in some sense, because of the opposition to it. So the kingdom will appear to fail as its seeds will be eaten up, scorched, smothered, etc. But amidst its apparent failure, the fourth seed, against all expectation, will produce an abundant harvest to more than offset the failure of the original three seeds. So in this, I guess, more likely interpretation, we might call the parable the parable of the seeds rather than the parable of the sower. But I think looking at it on a deeper level, the parable really is about the sower 
after all, and his kingdom that the seeds brings about. So the failed seeds and soil perhaps can represent various stages of Israel's mission, like in the past and and the manner in which God's God, I guess the manner in which God plans for her to be, I guess you could say continuously frustrated by uh, Satan's opposition and a desire for her infidelity. So Nonetheless, the fourth and decisive seed will accomplish God's purpose. Like, the kingdom of God will come through Christ, even in the face of human opposition, and and actually in an ironic sense, because of that opposition. So, uh, it's just important to remember that that God has foreseen that opposition all along. And and that's important in understanding the coming of, of the kingdom of God, because the coming of the kingdom that Jesus reveals in Mark's, Mark in the, in the Gospel of Mark and that the enemies of Jesus oppose is deeply paradoxical. Like the first step in recognizing the kingdom of God is to recognize the person of Christ himself. So the readers of Mark have to be aware from the first verse of Jesus's identity, or at least something of it, that he is Christ and, and he is the son of God. And, and what, are, what is remarkable is that is that for the first half of the gospel, none of the human characters are able to confess his identity. I would I would probably say human characters because the demons, as we see in, in Mark, do confess him. But it's not until Peter's confession later on in Mark, in like chapter 8, that the disciples <laughs> begin to show evidence of Jesus' true messianic identity. However, the, the confession of Peter in, in Mark 8 is, is incomplete. He grasps the Christ part but omits the Son of God part. And it's easy for the reader to miss the significance of this in the Old Testament manner of speaking because the terms are roughly synonymous. For instance, the Davidic Messiah is referred to as the Son of God in the Old Testament, not frequently, but in, in some very memorable texts like Samuel, for Second Samuel, but also in Psalms. So in Mark's Gospel, Son of God points to a deeply mysterious, paradoxical understanding of the messianic nature of Christ and the kingdom he has come to usher in. So the original... David was a conqueror who who vanquished in God's enemies from the land of God's promise to Abraham, like in order to make the children of Israel safe under David's reign. So the new David and true Messiah of Israel will not like be a conqueror and will not inflict suffering and death um, on God's enemies. Um, but like on the contrary, he will and thus the true uh, like he will receive suffering and death and, and the enemies of God will inflict this upon him. So Jesus, the son of God, <laughs> actually reveals the fullness of his sonship and thus the true nature of a messianic like identity on the cross of Calvary. And it, it's the ultimate in humble service that, that goes utterly beyond human our, our human logic or indeed anything revealed in the Old Testament. Like unlike pagan Gentile rulers, for instance, Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life as we know, for a ransom of many, and an action which not only defines Christ himself, but one which sets the template for all of us, like all of Christ's followers in the kingdom. And Peter doesn't understand this, which is why Jesus has to rebuke him. And Jesus insists on a, on a kingdom in which all will be reversed in order to be uh, set apart from the world. And man must cling to Christ in order that in order to do that, that man man must be willing to take up his cross and fall in the way of Christ. Peter's misunderstanding actually continues. So that's why he exercises what I would call like a foolish bravado in his in his promise to follow Christ to the end. Like he fails, as we know in Mark, just as all the disciples do. So, I mean, we see them flee in fear. 
fear. Like, ironically, the first human being to begin to grasp the mystery is the centurion who's there to witness Jesus' brutal death. Like, the centurion exclaims and bears witness, like, truly, truly, this was the Son of God. And Mark's message is, is quite clear. Like, one cannot even begin to understand Christ, his messianic like identity, the kingdom of God, uh, anything that he brings until one first goes to the cross. And it is only here that Jesus and the kingdom are fully revealed. And this is a challenge of doing Christology right from the text of the Gospels. We expect the Gospels to tell us all the answers in a formula and to like clearly define terms and unmysterious teachings. Like What they do instead is tell us a, a story that has its crux at Calvary and demands that we go there for answers. Demand that we go there for truth. But at the same time as we study scripture, we also have to study the tradition of the church. And so I think in doing so, it'd be helpful to take a brief look at, at Hebrews, um, which is also a text chosen as part of the canon. So as early as the second century, this treatise, which is of great uh, rhetorical power and, and force and admonition to faithful pilgrimage under Christ's leadership for the title to the Hebrews. It was assumed to be directed to Jewish Christians. Usually Hebrews was attached in Greek manuscripts to the collection of letters by Paul, but no author is actually mentioned a reference to, I guess no author is mentioned um, a reference to Timothy suggested connections to the circle of Paul and his assistants, um, but the exact audience, the author, and even whether Hebrews is a letter um, has, has been a long dispute. So the author of Hebrews, whoever that may be, saw the addressees um, in danger of apostasy from their Christian faith. And the danger wasn't due to persecution, but to a weariness with the demands of Christian life. And, and they lived with a growing indifference to their calling. So the author's main theme, uh, the priesthood and the sacrifice of Christ, is is not developed for its own sake, but as a mean of restoring the lost fervor and strengthening them in their faith. So another important theme of the letter is that the pilgrimage of the people of God to the heavenly Jerusalem, um, this theme is intimately connected with Christ's ministry, particularly in regards to the heavenly sanctuary. The author calls this work, um, what does he call it? A message of encouragement. And I think that's a designation that is given to a synagogue sermon. Like, as we see in Acts, like Hebrews is probably therefore a written homily to which the author uh, gave a, a epistolary ending. Like the author begins with, with a reminder of the pre-existence, incarnation, and exaltation of Christ that proclaimed him the climax of God's words to humanity. So he dwells upon the dignity of the person of Christ, superior to the angels. So, so Christ is God's final word for salvation, communicated. Um, not merely by word, but through his suffering and the humanity that is common to him. And so this enactment of salvation goes beyond the pattern known like to Moses, the faithful prophet of God's word, though he was. For Jesus, as high priest, expiated sin and was faithful um, to God with the faithfulness of God's own son. Like, just as the <laughs> infidelity the people thwarted Moses' efforts to save them, so do the so does the infidelity of any Christian thwart God's plan in Christ. Like Christians are to reflect that is that it 
that it is their humanity that Jesus took upon himself with all defects, save sinfulness, and that he bore the burden of it until death out of obedience to God. Like God declared his work of his son to be the cause for of salvation for all of us. Like although Christians I think recognize this fundamental teaching, we really grow weary of of it and and and, and its implications. And therefore it requires us to have deeper reflections to stimulate our faith, stimulate others' faith. Like the author presents to the readings for the reflection the everlasting priesthood of Christ, which is a priesthood that fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, but it also provides the meeting God ultimately intended in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And these pointed to the unique sacrifice of Christ, which alone obtains forgiveness of sins. The trial of faith experienced by the readers um, should resolve itself through consideration of Christ's ministry in uh, the heavenly sanctuary, but also like his perpetual intercession on their behalf. Like we should be strengthened by the assurance of his foreordained parousia, like by the fruits of faith that they have already enjoyed. And it is in the nature of faith to recognize the reality of what is not seen and is the object of hope. And the saints of the Old Testament give striking examples of that faith um, to us. So the, the perseverance to which I think the author exhorts the readers is is shown forth in Jesus' earthly life. Like, despite the afflictions of his ministry um, or, like, the supreme trial of his suffering and death, like, Christ remained confident of the triumph that God would bring him. And, and the difficulties of human life have meaning when they are accepted as God's discipline. And if Christians preserve or, or like, persevere in fidelity to the word in which they have believed, they are assured of possessing the unshakable love, the unshakable kingdom of God. Like, the letter of Hebrews concludes with a special, like, moral commandment. Like, in the course of which the author recalls the central theme of the sacrifice of Christ and the courage needed to associate oneself with him. Like, as early as the end of the second century, the church in Alexandria had, Alexandria in Egypt, like, had accepted Hebrews as a letter of Paul. And that became the view commonly held in the East. And Pauline authorship was also contested in the West into the fourth century, but then accepted So just to wrap things up here just a little bit, um, like Pauline authorship was contested in the West in the 4th century, but then but then accepted. So in the 16th century, the doubts like that the position, uh, surra- like the, the position surrounding the Pauline a- a- accounts like were again raised, and the modern consensus is that the letter was not written by Paul. But there is, however, like no widespread agreement on any of the suggested authors. Like could have been. Barnabas, it could have been Apollo, Priscilla, Aquila, any of those people. Like, the document itself has has no statement about its author. So, among the reasons why Pauline authorship might be questioned is, I think, the great difference of vocabulary, but also the style between Hebrews and Paul's letters, his other epistles, like the alternation of, of doctrinal teaching with moral exhortation, like the different manner of citing the Old Testament and the resemblance between the thought of Hebrews and that of Alexandrian, like, Alexandrian uh, Judaism, like, the Greek of the letter is in many ways the best in the New Testament. So since, like, the letter of Clement of Rome, like, to the Corinthians, written in, like, A.D. 96, like, most probably cites Hebrews, the upper limit for the date of composition is reasonably certain. So 
like while the letter letters reference in the present tense to the old testament sacrificial worship doesn't necessarily show that temple worship was still going on so many older commentators on a growing number of of the recent ones favor the view that it was and that the author wrote before the destruction of the temple of jerusalem like in that case the argument of the letters is more easily explained as directed towards jewish christians uh, rather than that of the gentiles and and the origin and, and the persecution that they have suffered in the past like as we see in hebrews like many have been connected with the disturbances that precede the expulsion of the jews from rome um under the emperor claudius so these were probably like caused by disputes between the Jews who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but also, like, those who did not. And I guess just um, with all that in mind, what I would what I'd recommend uh, doing from this point would probably be some, some I guess, rereading of Mark, Hebrew, the, the letter of Hebrews, and then also I would say probably some of the prophet Isaiah, just because there's a lot of depth there and there's a lot that 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 one can learn from um what what's being talked about there in regards to Christology and everything like um this week um as we're looking at this particular topic um there's a few general points about Christology to be appreciated before launching in like to the Christology of, of Mark as we just talked about and, like, as a preliminary question, um, before, I guess, talking about the specific content that we just did, um, like, it's important to ask questions of, like, why why do you suppose it is so important to have, like, the correct theological term, um, I guess you could say orthodox beliefs about Christ? Like, why, why do we have to be so particular about who and what Christ is? Like, is it not just sufficient to love him and follow him without worrying about theology? And that, that's a question that a lot of people ask. And so... In response to that, I would just encourage you really to just um, dive deeply into answering some of those questions and like trying to understand and appreciate that like the main reason one needs to appreciate the theological vastness of Christ uh, from an orthodox perspective like coincides with how we as humans process things. Like we come to appreciate the fullness of another by knowing the particulars of their life. And if we don't have a theologically sound understanding of of where jesus lived why he came to earth the velocity behind his message and like the overall purpose of his life in regards to salvation history then like how can we even truly grasp who christ is there is there is such an intentionality behind everything that happened in his life that every aspect of it inevitably holds a purpose to be explored so with that in mind um, I will be praying for you all until next Thursday when we're going to be diving into, well, I'm not going to tell you. It's going to be a surprise. You're going to have to come back next week if you want to know what we're talking about. So, yes, until then, I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Theological Thursday. I hope it made sense. I hope it was insightful for you. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please give it a rating and review. And make sure you subscribe so that every time there's a new episode, you will get notified and you can enjoy the podcast for your listening pleasure. But until then, may God bless you sincerely and I'll be praying for you as we continue to journey throughout Lent. God bless. Bye-bye.